so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue our mini-series on our recent release volume, The Digital Public Square with BNH Academic, I'm joined by Dr. Brian Bays to talk about his contribution entitled Once More with Tweeting, Bracketing a Public Square from the Perils of Notoriety. Today, Brian and I talk about how technologies altered our understanding of the public square, as well as about teaching the next generation about social ethics. Brian serves as an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Apologetics at Boyce College, where he also directs the Augustan Honors Collegium, as well as the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics degree program. He's contributed to edited academic volumes and writes popular-level essays for several Christian outlets. He's a graduate of the University of Kentucky, as well as the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He resides in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife and three children. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I've long wanted to have you on the podcast because of kind of your myriad of interests and especially in teaching philosophy there at Boyce. Um, But I'm really excited to have you on to talk about your contribution in our new volume, The Digital Public Square. But before we dig into your contribution and some of these ideas of political philosophy, I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about your background. What brought you to this place and what kind of stoked that interest in political philosophy and ethics? Yeah, I think it's a probably a fairly familiar story with a lot of folks, which is you encounter ideas or concepts largely in college that you can't really articulate or you're not really sure or you you have some notion of what it is, but you're unclear exactly what the kind of the contours of the idea is or or what it looks like or whatnot, or you encounter sort of the primary narrative or the primary story arc of that particular concept. And as a Christian, a lot of times it just doesn't set right. Uh, especially going to a state university. I went to the University of Kentucky and did my undergraduate, most of my undergraduate work there. And so taking a lot of philosophy courses and history courses, there's a lot of engagement with broad concepts. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in education at UK. But at times it was challenging, not just to my faith, but also just in general to what exactly is this? You know, I, you know, I, justice, okay, but like what precisely is it? Or how is it fulfilled in not just 
a theological sense or even in a metaphysical sense, but in a practical, political, societal sense. And the same as things with authority or liberty or freedom or equality. And those things kind of bounce around long enough. And at least in the early 2000s when I was in college, people either landed doing it or they didn't really, and they just kind of moved on. It was a class they took and just kind of moved on. But it just, it kind of stuck with me, especially in college. When I was younger, even even when I was younger, I was interested in politics. My dad, or my parents, I don't know if it was my dad, my parents, uh, ordered like these these floppy disks, which my students have absolutely no clue. I have to tell my students, floppy disk, it's the icon for save in Word. That icon, that's a floppy disk. Because that, they have no idea other than it just sound, it looks like an icon in Word of like presidential speeches and, and various things. And so I think for a while I had um, little snippets when I was 10, 11, 12, maybe 13, 14, or, or a little older, little small snippets, not major sections, but small st- snippets of like Kennedy's uh, moon speech and, you know, FDR speech and basically famous presidential speeches on a floppy disk that you could listen to. And I was sort of mesmerized by that and uh, kind of came into college thinking I was going to do that and then got called into ministry and tried to figure out how to square what seemed like uh, a round peg in a square hole and trying to figure out how to do this and what it looked like. And it wasn't really until my studies in ethics in philosophy and in history and how both of these kind of bring to bear on the public square and bring to bear on the ideas of the public square that it really started to kind of hit home. Uh, and then I just, I just kept reading and studying and reading and studying. And it was a lot of self-study, self-directed study, self-interested directed study. I uh, only took maybe one or two classes that were directly related to the things I was studying. I was just really curious about them. Uh, came and did my master's and PhD here at Southern Seminary and then ended up writing my dissertation in political philosophy, uh, largely out of what happens to a lot of people who write dissertations, which is this idea either really intrigues me or it, it really makes me angry. And I want to try to sort of find a way to poke a hole at it and sort of pop the bubble. I was the second one, not the first one. It, it intrigued me, but it frustrated me. And so it just kind of grew and just continued to grow. Um, and I just started to see students uh, kind of uniquely interested in this or gr- or a growing interest in this, sometimes just asking basic questions, but sometimes asking really sophisticated and important questions that made me pause and go, I think I can answer this, but let's just give me some time to think about this carefully before I give you a sort of stock lock and barrel answer. Um, all of those kind of fostered me and kind of grew me. Um, I tell people frequently when they ask, you know, you teach all these things. Why do you know? Why do you teach them? Or how did you come to learn all this kind of stuff? And I, and I tell them a lot of times it was it was self directed study, reading, engagement, but it was also spending time with my students and my students really pressing me with questions that I didn't really think about, and I don't know if I'd really thought about in that particular way. And I think that's one of the beauties of of teaching, right? It's it's a very sort of Augustinian that those loves move back and forth with one another. So I've I've learned a lot from them, and I hope in the almost a decade of teaching, they've learned something from me. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that, one of the reasons I, I look up to you so much, especially in the teaching realm and teaching ministries, because you do, you listen to your students, you're growing and learning along with them, and you're asking these big ideas. And you often, I think this kind of speaks to kind of the thrust of your chapter even, but you approach these big questions with kind of uh, an awe in some sense of slowing down, asking these big questions and kind of chewing on them rather than just kind of spouting off whatever you think for the world to hear or the world to retweet or to share and things like that. 
But before we dive into kind of the digital aspects per se, I want to peel back and kind of dig a little bit more into kind of the realm of the public square. I think that idea of the public square or a public square or the public square can be a little confusing at times. And one of the things that you've kind of alluded to is that you teach a course at Voice called Religion in the Public Square. You open up the chapter talking a little bit about this course. So I wanted to see what are some of the topics that you cover in a course like that that are kind of connected to the public square in general? And then how does that kind of hearing from your students and hearing their feedback and their questions kind of altered the way maybe that you even teach that class in terms of kind of an increasingly digital society? So I've taught that class for, as I sort of start out the chapter, the better part of a decade. And how I taught it originally and how I teach it now are wildly different as it should be because, you know, hopefully I've learned what works and what doesn't and what pinpoints really the students are trying to ask and which ones are more pet projects of mine that they don't have any interest in those those can be discarded or saved for phd students um, or, or something you know um so the classes has adjusted pretty substantially since i began but the real spirit and the real heart behind it is to try to give the students an awareness of the ways in which christians from uh, as long as they've held their you know as long as they've held the name and as long as they've carried the name how they've sought to engage, how they've sought to think, and how they've sought to wrestle with their place in broader society, in a public square, a place where ideas are shaped and ideas are changed or ideas are discussed or a, a, a meeting of the minds, if you will. And whether it's Paul the Areopagus or whether it's Justin the Martyr writing his apology or whether it's the letter to Diognetus or Augustine writing the City of God or so on and so forth, all of these are faithful men and women of God trying to figure out how they, as the people of God, fit into the broader kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God works with the kingdom of man, if we want to sort of really loosely use some of Augustine's language from the city of God here, how they negotiate space with each other in a terrestrial territorial sense. Obviously, the kingdom of God does not negotiate with the kingdom of man on a theological, eschatological sense, right? You know, his, his kingdom is forever in it, and it's both inaugurated and coming. And so in that sense, that's true. But there's also another sense in which uh, those who are of in, those embodied men and women who are of the kingdom are also under certain kinds of terrestrial authorities. And how do they live in a way that's faithful, in a way that is both uh, submissive or necessary, but also um, speaking truth and um, and obeying God rather than men where necessary? And there's a whole big, massive Christian tradition that shows how this works and how they did it and how um, it can't be a mere one-to-one comparison. It can't be just a mere drag and drop from the first century to the 21st. But there are principles, there are guideposts, and there are um, signposts or you know, kind of whatever language you want to use here that I think do translate pretty easily or do translate pretty quickly into kind of where we are today of law is designed to restrain evil, right? Um, uh, justice is right order, right relations within society, right relations with both self and society, that a common good is a commitment of all individuals towards shaping what is around them and shaping the people and places and things around them according to natural law and, and revelation. And so trying to get students to sort of think in those categories and help them see that, um, that it's, that this story is your story too, that their, 
that it's almost like uh, brothers from or uh, your ancestors writing you letters saying this is how you are to operate in the 21st century or what have you um, and trying to say that these are some ways in which you can you can navigate these waters you're not in Rome and they're not in America but the ways in which they speak sound similar in the way in which they say here's how you face here's how you face others inside the kingdom and here's how you orient yourself to those outside the kingdom and here's how you handle authority and here's how you understand the nature of authority and the ways in which authority is distinguished and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, and so the big kind of drop is a lot of the students who take this class are not, they don't really care about politics and they don't really care about philosophy or whatnot. Some of them care too much about politics or, um, some of them just have absolutely zero interest at all. And my goal at the end of this is to help them recognize. And I tell my students, I I tell them this frequently. It's kind of a refrain throughout the class that you may be here and you don't care. Um, I don't care that you don't care because you're going to be made to care at some point in some way. And that's not original to me. Someone else has said it. I don't know who, but, but the idea of you'll be made to care is not, is not an original notion, but it is powerful to say, are you going overseas and you're spending your time in a foreign country the rest of your life? That's great. You'll have authorities you'll have to reckon with and you'll have authorities you'll have to deal with. And you'll have to think carefully about what it means to exercise proper authority and also submit to proper authority and also not submit to proper authority and and to learn how to care for marginalized and how to care for those who are wronged by leadership and are wronged by government authorities. And we don't just get to spiritualize that away. We don't just get to say, well, that's of this world and I'm worried about the next world. It's both and. It's not either or. So it's not just for the pastor who's going to go work in Kansas City or Louisville or wherever. If you're going to a closed country, you're going to have to reckon with the fact that the country is closed because borders are closed, because laws have been written by men and women who say you as a Christian are not allowed to be in here. And you're going to have to deal with submitting to government authorities where necessary and also not where the kingdom supersedes it. You can't. If you want to get from A to B in those countries, you're probably going to have to follow some kind of traffic laws that were set up by people who don't want you there. But that also doesn't mean that the second you're there, you proclaim from the rooftops that you're Christian. There's prudence and wisdom attached to those things. So just helping them think carefully about what what it is we do and, and why it is we do it. And so we work through the wisdom of the Christian tradition kind of from the early church to kind of up to now. And then we work through some high minded concepts of dignity and rights and justice and sort of applications in the 21st century. So we talk about assisted suicide and abortion and religious liberty. And um, since I'm a Baptist and the school is, is Baptist, we speak of religious liberty often and, and we think about Baptist political theology and what that means. So that's really kind of what the class is, but how it's adjusted. Sorry, that was really long winded, but how it's adjusted is to say, some of those features that have been discussed throughout the decade have have been tweaked a bit and they've been adjusted a bit. When I started, the reality of same-sex marriage was not instantiated in law. So I was preparing students on how to engage with something that was coming that's yet to arrive. Now it has arrived and now it's thinking carefully about what it means on the other side of that and how you have other good-natured, well-meaning Christian men and women who will who will have different opinions, well-informed different opinions on what it means to sort of negotiate space in this new reality. 
and so on and so forth, right? Uh, now, now in a post-Roe world, right? What does this look like? What does the pro-life movement look like? What does what the protection of the unborn look like in a post-Roe world? How do we celebrate that, but also not sort of sit back on our heels? How do we think about these things carefully? So it has adjusted, and technology has been one of the principal ways in which my syllabus has adjusted and the ways in which we think about it is to say, what does this class religion in the public square look like in a technological age in a way that it's no longer just face-to-face textured conversation, but now it's headphones and zoom or it's characters, right? It's 280 characters or it's captions over an image, whatever it is, it's shifted and we can uh, not like it. And there's good reasons not to like it. And there's plenty of people who would lament it. Even people who are worth reading and listening to, just have to reckon with the reality of it. So that's what I tried to do in the chapter. And that's what I'm trying to sort of do is to to reckon with the reality, but also try to orchestrate ourselves and posture ourselves in a way that allows for the wisdom and virtue of the Christian tradition to stand through um, and to bring it to bear on the realities of the issues of the day. Well, I think it's pretty clear based on your answer, even to that question, that you're steeped kind of in the the long tradition of Christian political thought. And I think that's one of the things that I think I hope students benefit from and um, enjoy is when they do take your classes and even reading a chapter like this, you're kind of pulling back into the history of Christian political thought, having them not Christian and non-Christian that for that matter, and helping them to kind of see a robust account and how people, how our ancestors, as you say, kind of have written letters in some sense to us to help us to understand some of these big concepts. I know in certain circles, especially in theological circles, there's kind of this growing tradition almost of theological retrieval, going back to the sources, going back to some of the pre-modern sources even. What does that look like in terms of when we're talking about the public square and kind of political philosophy and ethics to go about a process of retrieval? Retrieval for me, and and this word is kind of a catch-all. It's it's become kind of a catch-all buzzword, but at least the idea in the chapter that I wanted to bring about is not this really rich, sophisticated notion of retrieval. I'll leave that to the scholars who know how to do that far better than I I ever could. But it's the idea of there's there's something that is missing in Christian political witness or Christian political engagement that uh, is not detrimental to the current movement, right, or, or, or whatnot. So whatever it is you may or may not think about the sort of moral majority movement, uh, the pro-life movement doesn't exist without it, and the successes of Roe v. Wade don't, don't happen without it, and uh, we don't live in a post-world world without it. So those have to be acknowledged also with what many would also recognize as maybe some uh, short-sightedness, some sort of wins on the short end for sacrificing the long end. Uh, Both of those can be true, but how do you not just reckon with that, but how do you take what Christians have done for thousands of years and try to map it onto what's going on now in a way that doesn't, like I kind of said earlier, it's not just a simple drag and drop. You can't just take, you know, uh, love God, serve the emperor and just drag it into the 21st century as if it's just going to fit like it did in the first century. That's not really what retrievals after, at least that's not the way that I understand it. It is a sort of, I use the word recasting in the chapter. I don't know if that's a great word, but it's one, I, I tried some alliteration. I'm not very good at it, but, but uh, a sense of trying to take those concepts and recast them in such a way to where they're relevant for the 21st century or they're relevant for what we're trying to do in a way that's still faithful to the, to use the, re, the casting, the material present. We're not reframing it to where it's unrecognizable, but we're trying to take it and apply it in a way that is uh, relevant to what's going on around us and how we go about doing that 
that sort of goes back, but then moves forward in a way that honors what's been said, the wisdom that's come before us, but in a way that faithfully engages around us things that, that are really important and really do need careful, distinct, robust theological accounts for them that, that are more than political, but not less, you know, I'm not an Anabaptist and I, I'm not a, I'm not a pietist in that sense. And that's okay. Like, like, like I just, I don't have those convictions. Some do in good faith. I just don't have them. And so I have to, I don't have the capacity to do uh, withdrawal theology. I have to think carefully about what it looks like to engage in the public square in a way that's faithful, the way that men like Justin the Martyr did or the way that Augustine did or the way that Polycarp or whomever, right. Did and how they, or, or Luther or Calvin, right. Calvin and Geneva, the way, Calvin dealt with usury in Geneva or the way Luther wrote a sermon on trade and usury and, and wrote a sermon on temporal authority, right? I mean, he's engaging with the world around him while also holding faithful to his convictions and being, being a godly pastor, just like Augustine did, you know, a millennium before him. And so trying to do the work of retrieval is just really trying to do, at least in my mind, just, it's just trying to do what they were doing and what the reformers were after, which is just an ad fontis. It's back to the sources uh, for that one, it was back to the biblical languages and the sources. But I think that can be that, and that absolutely needs to be part of this too. But it's also another like back to the sources that have strengthened what it means to be a Christian in ages where it's contested and where it's not just a given anymore. How do you do it? And what does you know a bishop from uh, you know North Africa have to say about this? from you know thousands of years ago what does he have to say about what we do in the 21st century or you know a german pastor you know you know a german minister or former monk what does he have to say about it or a, or a french pastor you get my point right the recasting language is not meant to be go get it and make it unrecognizable go find it bring it and with careful deliberation and wisdom figure out a way to bring it into the light and bring it into the public square and bring it into the areas that, that are really important and have to be considered. I know one of the figures you referenced in the chapter and someone who's been very influential in my own life and even kind of made, made light um, in a latter chapter that I wrote in the volume is Richard John Newhouse. Um, he has a, obviously a fairly influential book called The Naked Public Square. Um, that book, if uh, listeners listened to the episode last week, I talked a little bit about how that kind of even shaped the title of this volume um, because it was so uh, striking to me. I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about him and what is this concept of the naked public square? What does he mean by that? Yeah. Uh, so this is the mid-80s, 1986, I think is when he published it, 1986-87. What he's looking at is this idea that that political engagement is now being stripped of its beliefs, its longstanding beliefs that religious convictions or religious, I, I think in the chapter I call them religious invocations, are part of democracy, are a part of deliberative democracy. They're a necessary piece. And uh, the public square is being stripped of this, and so therefore the stripped language is also the naked language. And that that a democratic society, as necessary as it is and as important as it is, has values that are grounded in religious beliefs and has has at least the conviction that they are they are an essential part of the deliberative process so that those who are religious citizens have the capacity and have the ability and the freedom to speak from those convictions without feeling as if they have to 
translate. That's a little bit of Rawls more than Newhouse, but that's, I mean, Rawls is writing in the 70s and into the 80s. And so it's, it's part of the backdrop of just the whole shift of public engagement that I think Rawls is, excuse me, that Newhouse is, is commenting on, right? And, and is, is showing the realities of. And so the public square becomes naked. It becomes stripped of its longstanding beliefs that religious beliefs, religious convictions are part of democracy. They're a part of deliberative democracy. They're a part of what it means to engage in a public square that you come with your convictions, know what they are and, and you think carefully about them and modernity during that time, or at least contemporary society during that time was, was seeking to try to strip it. Uh, and this is also during the rise of the moral majority as well, where there's, it's kind of a reaction against that or a right kind of reaction against that in a lot of ways. So Newhouse is, is engaging with this. He's engaging with the idea of, of a, of a naked public square and, the twist that I sort of wanted to, t- I wanted to use Newhouse as a kind of springboard more than a influence, more than a big conversation piece, just to say in what ways now is the public square being stripped in a way that is maybe similar, but different, right? Um, if we want to keep using the strip language or whatnot, what other f- uh, fabrics of clothing, what other fabrics of the public square is being stripped of, or what's being put on it that, Again, we might not like the quote unquote fashion to keep the metaphor working, but it's an inevitable piece of of what it means to to walk around in the public square now. And that's technology. And that's the virtual reality of technology and social media. Well, I know one of the ways you kind of frame some of this up is in this concept of a public faith versus a faith of publicity. And you're talking about kind of this rise of notoriety and the way that technology in many ways kind of shapes our approach. I always talk to my students about how it's shaping our approach to God, how we understand who he is, um, but also how, how we understand ourselves, our own identity, uh, that of an individual and community. And what does that look like? And then it fundamentally shapes the way we interact with the world around us, including our neighbors um, and how we see them. And so you talk about this idea of a public faith as well as a faith of publicity. What's the distinction here? And what do we think that kind of technology is fundamentally either laying or layering on or kind of shifting the public square? What are you seeing as you talk about that in terms of notoriety and this publicity idea? Yeah. So the idea of this came back from conversations with some friends over the last few years, some of my really closest friends and confidants trying to think through these ideas and trying to figure out exactly what is it we're we're seeing we're trying to it's almost like nailing jello to a wall and going like okay what what's going on so you know the rise of social media and the rise of of not just social media but but the principled mechanism by which information is transmitted to the majority of the world and what is this doing not just to our politics but to our people and what is it doing to to, to individuals i know that's a big part of the projects and stuff that you work on and a big part of what a lot of people for a long time have been have been thinking about, you know, not the least of which guys like you know Neil Postman and um, and others, George Grant and and others. But for me, I wanted to draw the distinction between a public square that is public in the proper sense, and not a public square that is driven by publicity. And so I came up with these sort of notions of a public faith and a faith of publicity to kind of uh, force a contrast, right? Others may read this and think at times that that it's a sort of false dichotomy that you can't have a public faith without a faith of publicity. I think I would just want to ask. I might agree. I, it just depends on what you're meaning by this, and and um, and we'd have to kind of talk through that. I think. But the idea is to say that a public square is distinct from, or public is distinct from publicity, 
they may have the same root sort of notion, but the, the ideas behind it are, are really different. Um, I think, and I think social media and technology is driving this, the latter. Whereas I, I, I think the work of retrieval will help bring about the former, which is it'll help recognize kind of what I've said before and what is a central conviction of mine, which is that, you know, we don't get to retreat into the catacombs. We don't get to run away. We don't get to pretend like power is just a fundamentally bad thing or that we don't try to seek it and try to pursue it for towards good ends. Those are all necessary features of, of living as we are now. But what does it mean to engage with these really critical ideas in and around and through a medium that is not going away, that is fundamentally shaping discourse. And how do we do that in a way that's faithful and a way that doesn't forsake the fruits of the spirit, doesn't forsake virtue, doesn't forsake wisdom, doesn't forsake, doesn't forsake wisdom crying in the streets to, to seek it, to seek prudence. What does it look like? And that's where I think the work of retrieval can help because it can at least slow the angst down a little bit to go, the pressing moment is pressing, but there's always been a pressing moment. There's never been a time where the moment is not pressing, at least, you know, for Christians, at least since the dawn of, you know, the Christian faith. There's always been a time, there's always been something that has has pressed and pushed people into clarity uh, uh, of some form, some cultural, political, theological, or societal thing. And so thinking carefully about what it means to engage with these issues in a medium that implies a kind of demand that you must answer and you must answer quickly, uh, I think is, is kind of part of the task of, of, of a Christian sort of engaging in these new, this newer territory, these broader boundaries of the public square, that public engagements, whatever they are, uh, are informed by, by every bit of the Christian faith. And so that's where retrieval comes in and retrieval comes in both theologically, politically, often, you know, both and uh, theology is political politics is theology. Again, they're not, they're not clean silos separate from one another. And so what I wanted to do is to try to say um, a public faith, which doesn't run away from a platform. I probably could have said things like that probably better uh, than what I did. Uh, it doesn't run away from platforms. It doesn't pretend like they're they're net bads and not net goods. They try to seek to use them in a way, and they try to seek to articulate when they're in them a kind of vision for living as a Christian and a vision for living in the in this new arena. That it's not just that it sounds different or it looks different. It is different, and it is inviting others into persuasion and inviting others into uh, an opportunity to seek to persuade others rather than to try to just demand conformity and to try to kind of push back against or sort of push back in defiance against the kind of anxiety that social media perpetuates. Uh, some of this has to do with kind of what I talk about in the chapter that people can read about the kind of current forms of pluralism, the way pluralism is expressed. This comes out of the naked public square and the fruits of the naked public square and the way pluralism is understood now, the kind of political pluralism ends up sort of understanding difference as disaster or as a cancer to be cut out rather than recognition of the good fruits of dialogue and deliberation. And that that's the way it was meant to be, but the current form of it is uh, rotten. And so it has to be either replanted or there's some serious work that has to be done on it. And so I think looking at this and recognizing that a public faith kind of demands a waiting 
uh, a probing, a searching for things. John Webster says this, and I, f- I forget where, but he essentially describes wisdom or a wise person as someone who waits, who probes, who searches, who sees things that would normally escape most of us, he says, because we're, we're in too much of a, we're in too much of a rush to see it. And that rush, that ability to, to immediately and quickly see a response, feel a response, know a response to what I tweet out or what I see or what I retweet or what I share through, through, you know, Instagram reels or TikTok or, or whatnot, there's benefit to those mediums, but there's also a benefit to making sure that you're not being shaped by the medium in such a way to where you begin to see the people who have been offended by your reflections, your short pithy statements as sort of badges of honor or that they're just expressions of your uh, strength, right? Or they're expressions of your courage. There's a difference between, and the tradition often draws a distinction between courage and bellicose kind of boldness, right? The sort of brashness. Courage is informed by prudence. It's informed by patience and wisdom, and it's not foolhardy and it's not reckless. I think social media can, it does, it, it, it does not necessitate it, but it can produce a kind of person that rushes to judgments, rushes to deliberation before it's careful and before it's, before it's clear. You know, you answer a fool according to your folly, but you also answer not a fool according to his folly. And uh, wisdom may dictate one or the other, depending on where it is. But a public square, I think, now is served best when those who are in it, who are Christians, uh, are persuasive both with their words and with their disposition. And I don't think that necessitates shirking away or or confusing courage with niceness or or confusing patience with niceness. It's being honest and clear, but being firm but kind. And I, I, I think I think that's the way of the Christian faith: is to be firm and convictional, but kind, and to be able to navigate those. I think is harder with social media. It's obviously not impossible, but I think it's harder. And I think missing those distinctions can be the difference between whether or not a faith is driven by platform and what Yavolvin kind of calls performative measures. Right, it's driven by performance and performative measures rather than a commitment to institutional life and the goods of institutions and and the fabrics and and uh, functions of institutions. I think those are different, two different ways in which you orient yourself, both internally but also towards others. So that's really kind of loose the distinction between the two. To kind of bring this home, I think sometimes when we engage in the public square, we start thinking about this idea of like notoriety and influence and platform. Many of us don't have big platforms. We don't have a lot of followings. We've gone on a lot of social media. Maybe we've never published a book or even written an article before or something like that. And so sometimes I think in these conversations about social media and the public square, we can kind of get into this kind of pointing fingers habit or, oh yeah, that that's what this person needs to hear or over here, you know, that's exactly what they're doing. But one of the things I think you've kind of wisely done even over the last few years is even kind of reevaluate your own relationship with social media. And so I wanted to ask at kind of at a personal level for those of us who may not have like really large platforms or maybe significant, quote, social influence, and I put that in quotes, how is technology in that sense shaping even our more passive response or our passive 
um, engagement in the public square where we may not be the ones, quote, shooting out the pithy statements or writing the big monumental articles, but we're taking more of a backseat kind of watching it happen. Kind of help us to understand a little bit, maybe even in your own life, about how you've kind of altered maybe even your social media habits to kind of better instantiate those virtues of wisdom and prudence and character. Yeah. Well, I am um, <laughs> I'm what someone once called a serial quitter of social media, which means you you quit. And I've done this plenty of times. I think I just did it like back in August, where it's just this sort of like you make this sort of longstanding, sort of really strong, long-winded statement of why you're quitting. And then a month later, you're back. And so, you know, that's who is giving this advice. So just for full disclosure, that's who is. And I just I think that's for clarity's sake. I think that that piece is important. But to your question, I think I've tried as best I could or as best I can, not I could because it's an ongoing process. The best I can is to look at the habits, the habitus, the sense of of sort of disposition that I have towards myself in the world and to see where social media might actually bring strength to that or where it might help or where I might need to chase in and sort of uh, restrict what I'm doing or how I'm doing it in ways that are more beneficial and helpful. And so there are just some basic social media principles that I just really don't do anymore, which is I don't really try to comment on whatever is most pressing. Again, I think the question is try. I just, I, I don't. So if there's a current major crisis of some kind that seems relevant in a particular circle, I try to just pause. It doesn't mean I step away. It doesn't mean I mute everybody who's talking about it. Those are, those are far-fetched sort of things to do, but it's just to sort of think carefully about what it means to engage with those things and then if it seems necessary, then step in. Uh, and if it seems important, then step in. Uh, most recently with Canada and MAID and assisted suicide and some of the very personal but also um, research interests that I have with aging, the elderly, and friendship, it's just really near and dear to me. And so I've I've said a few things on social media about it. I'm, I'm currently writing an article that should come out in the fall about friendship and the elderly and caring for those who are describing what um, uh, autumn – Ridnauer describes as aging towards death. Brilliant book, brilliant scholar. Cannot recommend her and that book enough. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, and so just trying to think carefully about those things. So I have commented pretty substantially on relevant moments with respect to assisted suicide because I think it's a moral scourge and I think it's a tragedy that that I don't. This may be this may be histrionic. This may be hyperbolic. I, I, I I'm not really sure we're prepared for, uh, and I'm not really sure. I don't know the legal side. I'll leave that to the lawyers and to the nonprofits that may know stuff that I don't. Uh, but the courts haven't commented on this in a long time. It's coming. Uh, baby boomers are not getting younger. They're getting older and they are a massive demographic. And um, I think many of them are catechized on individualism and uh, expressive individualism. And I think they're going to ask for it in a way that in a decade, a not insignificant number of states are going to have it on their books. And so we're gonna have to think carefully. We're gonna have to think carefully about this. This will be the. This will be a new pro-life. Organ- this will be a new pro-life group that really has to come up and think carefully about these things, because beginning of life and end of life questions are really kind of of the same. They're of the same piece, uh, same kind of arguments. And so we've been prepared for fifty years to do this. We just need to retrieve. <laughs> we just need to take some retrieval and recasting, if you want to use the language, and apply it to the elderly and the aging, and to make sure that they're they're protected against the barbarism that is assisted suicide. So all that to say, I've tried to think carefully about those things. I've also just tried to keep some really simple principles of, I use social media largely for sports and I use it for keeping up with friends and I use it for 
writing, you know, uh, uh, promotion of my writing or, 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 or whatnot. So again, I'm not against platforms. I use it as a platform. If I, sh- if I write an article or if a book comes out or, you know, or whatnot, I have no problem sharing those things or sharing those of my friends who've come out to, to, to use it, to promote my friends. And I just try as best I can to not, to not use it in a way that makes it seem as if I'm trying to garner and gather more followers. I think there's a place for that. I think there's a place where you can do that with wisdom and you can do that with strength and you can do that in a way that's not problematic or harmful to anybody, especially to yourself uh, and your soul. But I think there can also be ways in which you might wake up and not really recognize who you are anymore, or your online presence is what people know you more for than what they are in person. And when they meet you, the response is, huh, I kind of like that guy in person. But the guy online, I don't like, or maybe vice versa. I don't know. You know, maybe you're a scold in, uh, in person, but then you're really great online. Either way, the point is just to say there's a dissonance. And so to think carefully about the habits and practices and how those things are incorporated in your life and how um, uh, irascible thumbs does not a virtuous person make. And I think thinking carefully about that and how that temptation hits people will be different. And what people see as their calling may be different on that. But either way, even if you're not on it or you're on it just for sports or, or you never tweet or you never talk about it, the thing I tell my students all the time, it was impressed upon me uh, a few years ago by a mentor, you are shaped by the goods you seek and you are shaped by the goods you don't seek. Uh, and so to think carefully about what goods, what goods of creation, what goods of, of the intellectual life, what goods of the spiritual life are you pursuing and what are you seeking after and where does social media fit within that? It does. It inescapably does because it's a part of how we communicate almost just period anymore. And that's okay, but you have to learn how to order it properly into the rhythms of your life and the rhythms of who you are and how you operate to ensure that you're not driven by anxiety, you're not driven by frustration, but that you have a long end in view and that you're committing yourself to tangible, real people and institutions and places that keep you grounded in a way that avatars and tweets and Snapchats and IG stories uh, don't. They're by their very nature abstract and disconnected in a way that uh, feels relational, but it's not. And so having people in your in your ear and having people reminding you that there's a big wide world beyond just the current controversies of a social media is actually really important. It reminds me of some wise words from uh, our friend Karen Swallow Pryor. She was on the podcast at the end of last year talking about literature and virtues and pursuing after wisdom. But one of the things she said recently, and I really loved it, she said, let social media be a place that you showcase the work. Don't let it be the work. And I think sometimes we get lost in that of thinking this is what this is my job. This is how I this is my ministry is tweeting or posting or doing videos and things. And that's as you said, there can be some wisdom. There can be some good to come from that. But when it becomes the work, I think we have some problems instead of sowing. I always use the illustration in the classroom of the iceberg where you have a little bit of the iceberg kind of poking up above the water. But when we're teaching, when we're preaching, when we're doing ministry, when we're discipling our kids, whatever, is to know that there's a lot more under the surface uh, that's actually kind of driving kind of that public expression. I think it's an apt metaphor uh, for how we navigate in the public square. The last question I want to ask you, 
Um, obviously, as uh, you've been talking today, we've heard a lot about you in the classroom. You obviously teach philosophy and ethics for a living there at Boyce, and you oversee what I think is a really exciting program, um, and especially in Southern Baptist life, of uh, philosophy, politics, and economics, the PPE degree there at Boyce. I wanted to ask you, in light of that and kind of in light of your leadership of a program like that, what are some of the challenges and the opportunities that you see while teaching and kind of training the next generation about some of these important concepts? Because obviously, as you already kind of alluded to, tech isn't a separate set of issues per se. It's actually an element of all of the things we talk about, whether it's pro-life, human dignity, religious liberty, marriage and family. I mean, it's a host of issues, but tech is an element. So what are some of those challenges and opportunities that you see kind of as you're training and discipling the next generation to engage in some of these really important concepts? Yeah. So a big part of my task, I think a big part of what I'm trying to do is trying to trying to give them some really serious hooks that they can they can latch issues and realities onto. Some of those are not one of those hooks is created by me or made up by me. They're just hooks of authority and justice and dignity and rights and uh, liberty and freedom and equality and all these things and, and more. And trying to help them see how these hooks, how these really important critical hooks that have been around for thousands of years, both Christians and non-Christians have reflected on these in both good and unhelpful ways at times and ways in which we can see them know them, and then apply them to the particular context that some of them are going to be in. Uh, We have PPE students that are either going back to their home countries or who are going to serve overseas. We had a PPE graduate a few years ago who uh, used their degree to to go overseas, and they spent a couple of years overseas in a a close country and then came back. They're back in the States now, but but they use their degree to to do some nonprofit uh, work over there with respect to human rights when they were over there. And so trying to give a student like that a framework to go, okay, I'm in this kind of world. What did we talk about in class that's going to help me orient? What do we write about? What do we read about? What do we discuss in class? It's going to help them think through about what it means to be a faithful steward and to be a faithful pilgrim and sojourner and stranger in a land that's not yours, but the Lord has apportioned for you, for that to be your land and for that to be your people at that time. And so how do you become what Wallace Stegner, who is one of my favorite writers, calls the difference between a boomer and a sticker, where a boomer, this is another one of the big hooks I try to give my students, is, is to be, be one of these. I'll tell you in a minute which one. But there are boomers and stickers, and, and boomers are those who kind of come into a space, an institutional space, a societal space, maybe even actual physical space, and just sort of use it to their own benefit and then boom, kind of go. Then there are those who are stickers who come in, still have needs, still want to use it in the proper Augustinian sense of use and enjoy, and still want to grow and want to be a part of it, but they stick around for the long term and seek the good of those people, seek the good of that community, seek the good of that institution, uh, the people within them who are both there now and who are to come, and to cast a vision for people such that those hooks are there forever. And so I tell my students, no matter where you go, how can you be a sticker instead of a boomer? And how can you... um, how can you, wherever you find yourself and whatever you do, because we have some who graduate from the program who become pastors. We have um, several who go to law school. We just had a student uh, who I was just, I was just told today who is got accepted to law school with a full ride. And so we have two or three graduates who are working in politics, two of which are one of which is working in DC to the other two are working back in uh, their representatives home offices. We have a graduate who's, who's an architect 
or is setting to be an architect. So it's really wide ranging, but all of them in different times and in different ways have kind of said the program has kind of helped them uh, grapple these hooks and kind of take them in their proverbial backpack, if you will, and carry them with them, whether they're going to law school or they're working in DC or they're overseas in a close country or they're a stay-at-home mom or they're a pastor or they're working in finance. It, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter to them in that sense. And so, um, so, so I think part of that is trying to get students to do that no matter where they go or no matter what they do and trying as best they can to, to be faithful stewards, to be faithful sojourners and pilgrims wherever they find themselves. Uh, and that's really what the program is built around. It's built around classes like political philosophy and political economy and the history of philosophy and, and logic and constitutional law and, and, you know, economics courses and trying as best we can to give these students their hooks. So when they go on to graduate school or law school or wherever they go, they're ready and prepared to think carefully about the nature of authority wherever they find it or justice. And, and that it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's about four or five years. It's six years now. It's about six years old. And uh, we're now starting to get a really fun group of students who are graduating from their grad schools. And so they're coming back as alumni. And um, a couple of them, even in the next couple of years, I think there's going to be some opportunity to maybe do some adjunct courses in their specialized areas. So they're going to be able to come back and, and contribute to the institution in a way that's really cool and way I never really thought, but, but I think it's going to be able to happen in the next couple of years, especially. And I just love that. And I love, I love the unique kind of features and the unique realities that this program has really brought about in a way that I, I never dreamt and I never expected, but I'm really, really, really thrilled. Well, I'm really grateful for your leadership there at Boyce and specifically with this program because I think you're doing some really, really important topics and kind of covering a lot of what even we talk about here at the RLC. But I just want to thank you, one, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here today on the podcast, um, as well for your contribution to the book. For listeners' sake, uh, if you want to learn more about this book and also order your own copy, you can visit jasonthacker.com books, or you can pick up a copy at your most major book retailers, including your local bookstores, uh, Lifeway.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many more. But Brian, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thanks, Jason. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Brian and learn more about his contribution to the Digital Public Square project in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.